this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I need to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. All right, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you to everybody who has been listening and sending in comments and sending in suggestions. I really appreciate it. It means a lot. And with me today is uh, somebody I met uh, through LinkedIn, actually, and I thought she had two very creative posts around leadership that I wanted to talk about. And with that, I'd like to introduce Jessica Ray. She's a VP of Account Management at Blackline. And with that, Jessica, welcome and thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Cool. So your first post, one I wanted to talk about was the one about becoming more heart-centered in leadership. And I thought especially in the tech world and uh, being a, a sales leader, like what was the origin story of that post? Where did that come from? You know, I was thinking about that before um, we got together, and actually, I wrote it about a year ago, maybe a little bit over a year ago, and I've been in a leadership role for five years now, and I think the the change that I saw with COVID happening sort of sparked this um, observation that I had around how obvious it was when there wasn't great leadership. And it, start, it really got me thinking about, well, how do I show up as a leader? And I think there was just such a massive change at that time, about a year and a, almost a year and a half ago now, that I really sort of realized, okay, I've got to look at how I'm evolving and you know, how do I show up as a leader? And how is that helping or caring for also the people that, that are working for me? And I think on one level, it was, pretty obvious to me, you know, on a national stage that we didn't have some great leadership in place and there was chaos and it seemed like a really, you know, scary time. And there, then you had like little specks of people that would show up. And there was, you know, certain governors at that time that just took a stance and just said something. And I thought it was just so, it was subtle, but it was very profound at the same time. So I started thinking a lot about just my own evolution as a leader, you know, I was my first job in leading a lot of people. Um, it was 2016. And so when I wrote this, it was 2020. So it had been a four year time period. And it was just sort of a, I think more of a, like a reflective exercise for me to kind of lay out, you know, what have I learned and how have I evolved? So that's really where it came from. And the thing that I that struck me it was the first paragraph, but it was just being conscious of your fears. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, I'd love to to dive into that because you you talk about being conscious of them and what were or what are some of your fears as a as a leader? Yeah. So, and I'll explain. Like my lens as a leader is through a sales organization. So. I have managed a book of business that was fairly large and you know up to 10 people running that book of business of all various 
um, degrees of tenure in their career. So really green people all the way through to people that were older than me selling software for way longer than, than I had ever been selling software. Um, so, and I had been a salesperson before. So I went from the sales role into a leadership role. And so a lot of my fears are around my own perfection, my own drive, like how, you know, being results oriented, how am I going to get to the number? And so early in my career, it was much, and I think almost every leader in a sales role anyway that I know of does this, they, you almost get into the position and you just are doing the job for your, your people Mm. because you're like, we're going to, we're going to win this thing, you know, and I'm going to get there. We're going to get to the number. And it's, you know, you, you get to a point where you're like, I can't do everything. And you've got to enable them. So you get to this fork in the road where you're either going to continue to like be a super rep doing every single thing, or you're going to go to the, okay, I have to step back and basically look at how I'm going to provide the information for people to learn themselves. But any time that I would, um, in my early days, in my early part of my career, where I would feel like, that person's not going to be able to do it or we're not going to hit the number, that would be my own projection or my own, you know, fear of failure that I would then, you know, turn out on the team. So it was like, if we didn't do something really simple, like, you know, with admin cleanup or the, you know, what were the optics from, from my leadership down, you know, I can't turn and like, project that fear that I have of not being perfect or being seen as perfect onto my team. And I think that was probably one of the the hardest lessons that I learned was recognizing, oh, that's my fear. And that's not necessarily true for you. And I have to, you know, give you the tools to make the decisions and not do it for you. Do you think being a parent has helped you with that? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, as much as you're like, I don't want to treat my team with my, ch- you know, as children or anything like that. It's definitely, I think being a parent gives me a lot of empathy. And, you know, I think the compassion for, um, I don't know, just recognizing that people are managing other things outside of life in addition to doing their their job with you. But yeah, for sure, I take a lot of lessons from my mistakes as a parent and <laughs> and apply that to you know my my position to make sure that um, you know it's like love and logic. Do you are you familiar with love and mm-hmm. logic? <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's like you got to let people fail, you know, if they're going to grow and you have to fail fast. That was sort of my my motto. And I I think it's like I own one of the things that I'm sort of relentless about my own personal growth. And I think that was another thing why I wrote the piece Um, because I just like looking back and it's like, what would I do differently? Like, you know, it's been four years since I've been in the position. What would I tell myself originally, the person that got into the into the role. So what would you tell that person? Um, God, I still even think about that. I think my mantra right now is 
maintaining neutral curiosity. Oh, I love that term. Yeah. I think that's really helpful for me. Um, I think when people are moving fast, you have a tendency to be like, well, why didn't it go well? Or what did, you know, what did, what, what should we do differently? Or, you know, you kind of jump in and really it's like staying in that place of understanding. And this is the patience part too, that I think I've, I'm starting to master as I get a little bit older um, or more tenured in my role is, you know, the neutral curiosity is understanding what was their line of thinking, because then what you can do when you really understand that is really help enable um, people to own the decision and the process. And I kind of feel like if I'm doing my job well as a leader, it's not that I'm writing myself out of the equation, but I'm, but I'm really trying to not be involved in every little thing. If I'm doing my job well, I'm empowering people to make decisions and handle things um, on their own with obviously my support. But I'm definitely, I would not classify myself as a, as a micromanager for sure. I'm too busy to be a micromanager. <laughs> so. I love the term neutral curiosity. And I think that could actually be like that jumps out like it's a book title. I know, right? To me. I know. I just made it up. Because <laughs> I was like, I'm getting flustered or I'm getting frustrated. So again, we talk back to like talk or we ask you asked me about what are my fears. Well, my fears can be various things. Failure, I think, is what everybody's fear is at, at some level. Belonging, that's another like, you know, core thing that people want to be a part of something. They want to be successful. Um, but, you know, when I would, I think part of my success as a leader was really identifying, oh, I'm, I'm getting into an overwhelm situation right now. And when I'm in overwhelm, I'll start snapping at people or my tone of voice changes. And so that's where I really sort of came up with, you know, staying in that neutral mindset, but then also just being curious because um, I think curiosity is the key to really getting into understanding. Like, I don't want to tell people what to do, but if I, so I have to understand. And I think a lot of times we just miss that really basic, um, uh, the really basic idea of just be curious about what what was motivating them. Why didn't they do it? Why did they miss that? And then obviously having positive, assuming positive intent as well has been a big I, I like that a lot yeah that I learned a little bit late <laughs> I mean I feel like some of the biggest like places where I stumbled was when I would jump forward into not understanding the line of thinking of where somebody on my team was coming from and then also just it's not that I didn't assume positive intent but it was something that I really had to start thinking like, well, they probably were really busy and missed the email, like little things like that. Like if I could just step back and, you know, work that through in my head, it was like, okay, I can come across a lot softer than when I'm just frustrated because you feel like you're telling somebody the same thing 10 times over and they're just not responding, you know, because mm -hmm. that happens in management. 
I was thinking about this on the drive over about leadership and I think corporate leadership is a unique animal because it's not sports. It's not like high school or college sports. It's not combat. We're not talking about the military here. And there's so many nuances of, especially in tech, right? Mm -hmm. You've got salespeople, which can be one side of the personality spectrum. You could have developers. And I know I'm, um, generalizing here for a little sure, bit. For sure, though. But people that could be more introverted, but they still have to perform and things like that. And if that all rolls up under your responsibility, it's like, you just, it's got to be a very unique challenge. It is. And I think another one of my challenges that I've had is that my background was athletics. That's where I learned my leadership skills. Okay. What did you play or what did you participate in? So I was a gymnast all through high school and I dove and I ran track. And then in college, I mountain biked and raced cyclocross and rode. Um, So my, again, like my lens of leadership came from this very driven results oriented, which is also why I had a very successful career in sales. But it's funny because the original company that I worked at, so not the one I'm at now, but the one before, it was almost like the archetype of people that they hired were athletes. And so the leadership style in that corporation was very similar to that of how you would handle, it's almost like a um, tell and do, like tell and execute. And then I switched to this new company that I'm at and it could not be more different. The entire culture of the company is is very, very, very different. And so I've had to completely adapt and I've been humbled, you know, this year with my style because it's I telling and doing and executing is not the culture that they want to build. And it's it's actually why I left my other job. Like I don't want to recreate the old culture either, but it's sort of like my ingrained pattern is to, it's not like, it's not even authoritarian, but it's just much more direct, much more get it done. Don't ask questions. We're delivering. And now it's much more collaborative. And so it's been an interesting pivot for me. I mean, even after I've written this piece, I've had, you know, going back around the learning cycle again and (laughs) what did I learn before and how do I want to be and how do I want to show up and what does this team of people need from me in order for me to get the best out of them it's a it's constant it's changing you're never gonna master it because you're always going to have you know the different group of people that factors in that totally responds in a different way yeah And this might be a circular question, but when you were thinking about your fears and expressing them, were you afraid to express your fears? Did that, did you, were you concerned about being seen as vulnerable or as a leader that you're infallible or perfect or the, the ultimate example? Were you concerned about that? You know, I think a little bit, I've always worn my heart on my sleeve so and it's funny that because a lot of what i the some of the the books that i've read in leadership one is written by brene brown Mm -hmm. and she talks a lot about courageous leadership equals being vulnerable and i think it's kind of come naturally to me like i'm definitely a person that is 
quick to own that I might not or own that I I'm not the smartest person in the room. So it's like we've got to like assemble the team, (laughs) you know, which I think is an asset. Um, And I've also learned like, yeah, you have to admit when you're like, I misstepped or I, you know, I know when I emailed that I fired it off and I was frustrated. And so I think it's gotten easier to head right into those tough conversations. But I remember my first couple of years of being a manager, I, and I think maybe a lot of people struggle with this, like you establish the rapport on your team and it's almost, you're not friends with them, but you're establishing this friendly rapport. But then when stuff needs to get done, I would flip into this. I would go from friend, oh, Jessica's so nice and, you know, she's so cool and not worried and mellow. Then I would flip into my, again, my, my own fear of like, oh my gosh, we're not getting this done. We got to like, like get it going. And so I'd kind of turn quickly into this tell, do, just execute it. Don't ask questions. And so I think it felt very chaotic for the team because it was like, who are we going to get? Is it going to be like the person that's friendly or the person that's like stressed and projecting all all of my stress all over people. And so I really, and I still, I'm sure I still do that to some degree. I think I'm much better at metering and catching myself. Like I'll, and I know when I'm getting into overwhelm or I'll, I have identified situations. Like if I'm on the phone running a forecast call with my leadership and I have to like do math in my head and make this <laughs> no, make the you. numbers work i will get into overwhelm very quickly and then it's like that's just a thing that i've noticed over the past five years it's like that's a trigger for me if i'm having to answer questions quickly about numbers and do math and i'm working with you know very analytical people in my leadership who are very numbers oriented I'm always able to build the story around the numbers, but it's definitely something that I can, you know, I can get very direct to my team. Like, why why isn't this done? You didn't send this to me. That doesn't add up. Things like that, that I have to really, you know, know, okay, I'm going into a situation where I'm forecasting, I'm going to be in public, like reading my deals and my numbers. And I just have to like meter it back a little bit, but that's, You know, I think you learn that by screwing it up and then saying (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, What was the question I had? It was um, about the the triggers because Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with ADD later Mm -hmm. in life. And so... From their therapy and, and behavior, like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yep. Also being aware of my environment. And then I was in um, professional development for a while. And I want to come back to like some yeah. of your personal growth things. But learning uh, DISC and my behavior profile, like being that, you know, the it's probably called D for a reason because, you know, I, I can be a total D sometimes, yeah. you know. And, I have high D too. Okay. <laughs> What's your secondary? <laughs> Just, um, 
I guess it's I. Think I. I'm, yeah, I'm I. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. high D, high I. And then there's also the red and the blue. But that might be a different te- test than the... Di- I've done a several of them. Yeah. But yeah, because yeah, the yellow is outgoing and right. e- kind of extroverted. Yeah, yeah, I'm high D, high I. Okay. And then just learning how I would come across. Oh, yeah. And... Like I've told people, you can be super direct with me. Like it will not yes. hurt my feelings. But there's other people where without, and you're not. I learned I'm not coddling them, right? And I'm not softening the message. But it needs context. It needs to be um, framed and understood, and maybe slower paced. And yeah, that that's my secret weapon in in sales and relationships. Yeah. You know, understanding how you process information, so I can go sixty percent of the way. You could come sixty percent of the way, and then we're overlapping. That we can actually have a dialogue, right? But uh, yeah, before yeah. I knew that, it was a lot. Of well, because it's like, <laughs> yeah, you don't have the the map, right? You're mm-hmm. like, why am I so frustrated? Why are we going in circles on this? And I mean, I think that's the whole thing with it is that those type of tools are good. The the personality tests, because you can kind of at least it gives you like a, a grid or something to be like, OK, this person I know only wants the facts. They don't want the fluff. I'm not communicating with the story because that just drives them nuts. But it takes a long time. And I think that's what I've been doing over my career is developing my map (laughs) for knowing and it's really the map of myself it's you know I can tell when I come to work and I'm like oh man I am not in the mood for that email today and it's you know what I mean like when you show up like we all show up at different levels of being able to be patient or not patient depending on all various things going on in our lives and so one of the things that I've learned about myself is just don't send the email. Just, I think we live in this urgency culture where we think we have to respond to the text and respond to the email right away because it's in our inbox. And I think one of the, the best gifts I've given myself is the grace to say, respond to that five hours later or maybe tomorrow. And that has saved me so much grief. And I think earlier in my career, I was just plowing through, getting stuff done, answering things. And so it was, I mean, it, it was not my best self sometimes showing up in that moment. Yeah, I invoke the 24-hour rule a lot. Oh, I've waited five <laughs> days to have conversations sometimes with people when I'm like, I am way too emotional about that. And I think that's one of the things... I don't view being emotional as bad, but it goes back to that, like that neutral curiosity is a much, I want to like higher vibe than being emotional about something. And I think, you know, I didn't want to have the reputation. I'm passionate, especially when it gets to be like around having success in my job or doing right by customers, I, I sort of get super frustrated when I'm like, we're in our own way. Like, why are we doing this? Why are we making this so hard? But it's also that passion can be, you know, it's a lot for people. 
<laughs> so I've had to, you know, it's like that whole thing of like recognizing where you are in this moment and adjusting appropriately so that you can, you know, not talk if that's what, you know, if that's what needs to happen. And I didn't used to be able to do that. I was very impulsive. I would like fire off the email and be like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, <laughs> why did I send it? But you learn. <laughs> I like to say sometimes, look, I'm just yelling. I'm not yelling at you. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah, the, the passion, again, it can come across as like, it could be quite intimidating in yeah. some cases. And, and again, so like I've taken strength finders and so my empathy is off the chart. So when I hear that I unintentionally intimidated somebody or made yeah. them feel that way, I still feel bad because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I had no idea. Like, right. I'm sincerely sorry for that. Like I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, the, I think, yeah, because the pat, I'm, I'm in with you. It's like, I want to be passionate and get people rally. And I think that's one of my strengths is rallying people and just like cutting through all the riffraff and identifying and boiling down exactly what needs to happen. I, I really do think that's one of my strengths. But that's also a point for me to remember that that is a skill that I have. But then I start, that's when you start crossing into doing the job for other people. That's not helpful either. So that was, that's something that I work with constantly is knowing exactly what needs to happen to solve the problem, but not jumping right into that and going back to being curious about the person that I'm working with and asking them like, well, what's your plan? What's your take? I agree or I don't agree, or I agree with this, but I, I disagree on this. What's your plan? And I think I've boiled it down to having my meetings be pretty straightforward like that, you know, like not solving the problem for them, but you know, you, you head right into the tough conversation of here's the issue that we have. What's your take? Hear them out. Then I tell them I, which parts I agree with, which parts I disagree with, and then ask them their plan. And I think once I've done that, it's like so much simpler. Well, and that's true leadership, right? Because I define like a manager as somebody that like the, you said the, the, the tell do. Yes. And if you're leading somebody, you, I, one of my best managers, he said, I want you to be able to do my job. He was that secure in his performance that he could actually say that. I want you to know the skills, know what I know. And then you're becoming a teacher for those people. What's your plan? What do you think we should do? Have you thought about this? And then even that can help in the collaboration and go back to the kids. Mm -hmm. I, I, was always ultimately in charge of the kids, but I wanted them to own the decision. Mm-hmm. So if I offered them an alternative choice, you know, do you want this? Do you want this? They chose. It made for a much better dynamic, even though I was controlling the choices. Yeah. It worked when they were little. You right. know, they got older, right? Yeah, that's it's true, though. That, that ownership piece is the key component to the growth of the people that you're working with including your own kids, right? Yeah. And I consider myself highly emotional as well. And 
I think that needs to be defined. Like I avoid anger and rage. Mm-hmm. Like I don't like that emotion, but I will embrace excitement yeah. and sadness and joy and things that are sort of peaking the the scale in a in a positive way, even though sadness is probably not a positive emotion, right. but just feeling the depth of loss or something like that. Yeah. And I cry at Olympic commercials all the time too. Like you know, <laughs> the one where the dad comes down from the, the stands and helps his son across yeah. the track. I'm like, I'm gonna need a minute. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah, I think <clears throat> that's true. Like there's emotions that are more productive for sure. And I think, you know, my excitement and joy is probably two of the things that make me really fun to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the shadow side of that is, you know, the frustration and the anger when things aren't going my way. That's always t- the test of a true leader, right? When things aren't going your way, when you're not at your number, how are you showing up? And yeah, I mean, it's just, that's the, that's the, that's the work right there. Yeah. Well, in the sports that you mentioned, the gymnastics and the diving and the, the bike racing, those are, or, and I think any sport where you're working on something and it's been just frustration after frustration mm-hmm. after frustration. And whether you break through on like a little thing, say like a seven iron on the driving range, or you clear a jump on the mountain bike park mm-hmm. or you win, it's like there's this, all that tedious pain like right. finally paid off. And yeah, and hitting your number, like I could, I wouldn't want to be a salesperson and just go, oh, yeah, 110% quota, like, <laughs> all right, um, coffee. I right? know. Like, well, and it's funny because all the sports I've ever done are the individual effort toward the team score, yeah. not, I wasn't like a soccer player, I wasn't the basketball player, I always had my very specific job to perfect and do, and it was up to me in my own self only that but it did contribute to the bigger team score but I think that's another thing that you know we all bring our background and our everything with us into wherever we're showing up in a job and so that's one of the things also that I think I identified as oh I can't again project my own this is how I would do it this is my expectation of myself and just like push that all over you because that's not going to get the best out of you. Right. Do you remember the, going back to the personal growth, do you remember the first book that had an impact Hmm. on you? Wow. Um, Man, I read a lot of books. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I really I think I would still pick Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. Um, I just think her research on some very fundamental it's emotions, right? Like she's she's a researcher, but she researches shame, which is such a powerful driver of everything, right? Like it's gonna drive you away from certain things and choices it's going to drive you to certain things and choices and I think 
part of that vulnerability was in, again, like identifying what are my triggers, what are my fears, ultimately, like at the very bottom of all of those fears, it's probably shame. If I don't do this perfectly, what will people think of me? And I've come a long way to getting over that, what do people think of me thing? Because now, and again, I think this goes back to all the work that I've done, I care more about like how I feel exiting a conversation. Even if it's a tough conversation, like do I feel good about how I handled it, what I said, or do I not feel good about that? And the toughest times were when I, I don't feel good about how that went. I don't feel good about how I showed up. And then you just have to kind of give yourself the grace of like, I'm learning and go back around and acknowledge it. Like, you know, tell the person, I don't feel good about how that went and then move forward from it. And I think that also builds trust, but trust is like, you know, if if you're a leader and you, you lose your temper, you, that trust to build that back is so arduous. It takes yeah. triple, quadruple the amount of time to build. And the same with your kids, right? Like trust is eroded so quickly in one action or one harsh insult. And it takes many moments of you demonstrating yourself back in order to build that back up. And that's a tough leadership lesson too. I still, to this day, uh, my daughter was probably early elementary school, so could have been third grade, something like that, maybe even younger. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was an after-school activity or something else, but it was summer, and I was supposed to pick her up, and uh, I was like four minutes late. Like I was in the neighborhood, and then the lights stacked up. Totally my fault. Could have been, I could have been 15 minutes or cutting it short. And I just remember how upset she was and just the fact that, and I didn't even try to explain Mm -hmm. what it was. It's like, you're right. Yeah. And she was concerned that she was not going to get picked up. There was, there was no cell phone. She would have been too young to have one even then. And just that. Yes. commitment to myself. I didn't say it to her, but I, said, I will never be late again to right. pick you up. But totally. it's the, 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 and I was going to mention too, I've been listening to insight by Tasha Yurik about mm. the subtitle is why we're not as self-aware as we think we are. I oh think that's gosh, right. that's a great title. <laughs> I'd love to read that. <laughs> but she's talking about rumination as mm. part of the self-exploration because she says, you can go down this rabbit hole of just deconstructing yourself and going, I haven't hit quota for two months. You know, what's wrong with me? What's yeah. wrong with me? And it's more, she's getting into some of the nuances of how you talk to yourself about that. But rather than <clears throat> you know, ruminate on being late to pick up my daughter, own it, apologize. Of course, you and I are going to feel bad about it yeah. because we're humans, but like, let's just do this better next time. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think I heard someone who she's the CEO of a company and she's such a badass and I cannot, she would write papers and I was actually, I saw her speak one time and I was just as before you got here, I was looking her up on LinkedIn to see if I could find some of the things because one of the things that she 
um, holds as a value in her company is, you know, if you're going to create an environment that's going to be innovative, people have to feel comfortable failing. And when they, the only rule is fail fast. You fail, you get up, and you all move forward as quickly as you can. And I think that also goes to leadership. You know, it's like, you know, owning my mistakes, but failing fast and and moving forward, but then also acknowledging, you know, maybe I didn't send the nicest email. And so now I have some work to do to build that trust back with my, the person that works for me. But then also just acknowledging like, that's okay for them to feel that way toward me for a while. Like it doesn't bother me. I get it. I honor that for them. They need time to recover as well. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The other thing, as you were talking about the ruminating, that makes me, that goes back to identifying my, my fear is a lot of times I would get myself into trouble in a leadership role and I would realize like, I talk to myself that way. Like my own inner critic is brutal and I need to not turn that out on other people because that is the projection. It's me talking to myself. I'm just taking it out on someone else, you know? So that was a big, that was part of one of the big revelations. I was like, I know I, because we're all that, we're hardest on ourselves, but I think it's, you know, one of the things when you're a results, when I was in a results oriented environment, which then supercharged all of my perfection, results oriented directness. So I learned I, that's, that inner critic is, that's not for anybody else. And it actually helped me start becoming a little bit more compassionate with myself, which was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a link if you haven't heard it. Uh, Tim Ferriss interviewed this guy who's a sports psychologist and he's a he works with a lot of pro tennis players. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he uncovered in a study was that the not necessarily the most successful players, but the ones that were the most balanced, they could balance oh. success and happiness and they could win and they would feel content. Wow. were the ones that spoke to themselves with kindness. Oh, that's brilliant. And he actually would record, I think he put on a mic, I'll have to listen to it again, but he recorded some of these things. I'm really interested in that. Yeah, I'll send it to you. But he was saying that some of the things that we say to ourselves, we wouldn't say to our most hated Yeah, enemy. yeah, a hundred percent. We've got to take care of ourselves first. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that was a tough one. <laughs> tough, <laughs> tough learning lesson. I was like, "Oh. That yeah, you don't want to bring that on anybody else." And then you start realizing like, "Why am I doing that to my own self?" Yeah. There's enough people in the world in line, Jessica, that are going to get in line to beat us up. We don't need to be oh, forced in 100%. Line. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. I I think that <clears throat> Well, number one, the word balance, I like that you said in that sentence. But number two, you know, even in thinking about being a parent, just helping your kids, that's just a habit. That's just a belief system, you know? I mean, I think for those of us that 
you know, maybe weren't raised by the most self-aware parents either. Like they were just projecting their inner critic on us mm-hmm. as kids. So that's that whole thing. You know, it does really go back to parenting in a lot of ways. It's like, how would I want to hear my child talk to themselves? You know, you've got to help them learn that. Yeah. Because they'll do what we do to ourselves. <laughs> they'll pick it up. And we just overlay all of our belief systems all over people all the time. You know, I think that's part of the human condition is we are who we've been told we are. And unless you step out of that and change that for yourself, which I think a lot of people don't always know how to do, they just accept that as the reality. Right. Uh, one question I wanted to ask about the article, and for those of you listening, I'll post this in the show notes so you don't really have to, it, you should read both of these articles we're talking about, but you talked about the the family dynamic mm-hmm. and not having tough conversations and in whatever you feel comfortable with, but yeah. what was the, what was that addressing I in mean, that section? I feel like it's just conflict aversion, you know, it was just so much easier for people in my family to get mad and maybe say unkind things and then just try and move on from it and never address the, the I'm sorry part or I'm not proud of how I sounded in that part. So then it becomes like, not like a an outburst, but it becomes like, it was really hard for me to sit down and say, okay, with a, in a work setting, I don't like how this was handled or I have a problem with this part of the way that things went. And I really had to practice that a lot because I, I really wasn't raised in a house where people sat down and could compassionately say, I feel this way and, you know, I, I don't appreciate whatever happened. It was much more like passive aggressive, silent treatment. Enough time goes by and we all forget about it and move forward. Well, that's, that's not helping anybody learn conflict resolution, you know? (laughs) Right. So that's why I think I had such a hard time when it was like, oh my, you know, like when you have somebody that has performance issues or like you're having to put them on a performance plan, those are some tough conversations that you can't avoid. You know, it's just you have to set something in motion so that, you know, you're helping either helping them realize like they got to kick it in gear. And more often than not, those tough conversations, it's like, oh, God, I got to do this. And then like all of a sudden their performance starts working. But, yeah, I think that was something I had to learn outside of even my 20s um, was really productive conflict resolution and just heading right into that tough conversation of, hey, I didn't, I don't feel good about that or I don't like how that went. Boundaries. Yeah. And enforcing them. And I think part of it too is understanding how that makes you feel. Oh, totally. Or, Mm -hmm. Or how you don't want that to be repeated in any way shape or form Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be 
monumental. It doesn't have to be a, a huge, dramatic thing. It can be enforced in the most delicate of ways. Yeah, that's the real skill right there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I just, yeah, when you can hold boundaries or help someone hold good, you know, what you're not going to put up with, and you can do that in a very delicate way, that is, I just think that's, I think that's what I aspire to, you know, because I tend to, when I'm not being mindful, I tend to just jump into, you know, not anger, but maybe more of an, on the spectrum, a more angry response when it's like my boundaries have been crossed, you know? And so I think that's a skill is understanding the boundaries and still choosing to do what you need to do for yourself and doing that in a graceful way that's not like blaming or shaming. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All those easy things that are so convenient. I wanted to ask one more question and move on to your second article. And I'm going to try to articulate this as best I can. And as my daughter is going into her sophomore year of college and entering the workforce in a couple of years, and I've asked this question of other uh, women leaders that I've talked Mm -hmm. to is in your day-to-day existence, how much do you think about being a woman when it comes to your actions? It's not something, and I became aware of this through reading books and these conversations, is that I don't think about being a man. Mm -hmm. It's not a factor into, I'm, I'm aware if there's women in the room, but I don't adapt or change or think I need to change. And I'm wondering if you've had those thoughts or Mm -hmm. if they affect you or if you've addressed those or how you even approach that if you do. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the toughest experiences in my career was the feeling of being marginalized. Hmm. Um, And it was just, I think it's, it's an unconscious bias, right? Like the fact that you don't think about how do I come across or you know, I'm a man and this is what it means in a sales role. I probably think about being a woman every day in my role, but that also comes from being in a very male dominated Mm -hmm. space. So like I work in tech, we're probably 50% women. The company I work for actually is like amazing. Like one of the reasons I like went there is for their diversity and inclusion. So they've done an amazing job, but the sales organization is still, especially the management, is very male dominated. I think there's many calls when I'm the only woman on the call. And I think it's just, um, I think I've felt overlooked before, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I think that's tough because I do feel like there's certain times, like obviously, I don't know how a man feels, but there are times in my career, not necessarily in my recent career, where I felt like I had to show up and, you know, deliver the number bigger and sooner. And then I would get a chance at being looked at. And I think it's really funny, like some of the places where women get 
kind of left out is really in the social aspect of a of a hmm. of a corporation like they'll do like guys trips or golfing or something and it's it's not just women i think it's anybody that doesn't golf or isn't like in that sort of in crowd and so it's it's always obvious i don't i don't think it's obvious at all to people who are in it cuz they're like yeah we're you know we're diverse look at this like we've got women we've got everybody working here we're focused on it but there's real subtle things that happen where you don't you're just not quite in on that in on the in the in crowd and so then you i have felt very overlooked like i think that's one of the reasons i left my last job was i crushed it there for years and years and had one promotion and it was you know i saw um men around me that had we're in the right space at the right time, but had several promotions that I'm a hundred percent sure I have as much skill and reason to be in that position. So I, you know, but I also feel like, um, again, like generous assumptions, right? Like there's a, it's really, there's an unconscious bias. The other thing I think maybe women think, or maybe other women have experienced this, but being a mom, so I'm a single mom too. So I have covered part of like, not that I've not let people know that I have kids, but I think early in my career, it was like, don't make any assumptions about my ability to be a mom, have two kids and travel and get the promotion. Because again, that's an unconscious bias that I think we can end up getting overlooked because somebody's like, oh man, <clears throat> she's got so much going on. Like we can't, we can't, you know, ask her to do that or expect her to do that. And I think that's more common than, than people think, even in like a very evolved setting. I find it funny that I'll be asked about that. Like, you've got so much going on, but I haven't seen one episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> so you find what's important and what totally. is valuable. And I think if you're doing your life correctly, you focus on that. Yeah. And so, well, of course your kids are the most important. Your fitness is important. You can't deliver for them and deliver right. for, you know, but that's interesting. And I, and I ask these questions as well to learn because in, in my roles and in my interactions, I want to be aware. And I asked a similar question to a guest, uh, Tila Evans. Mm -hmm. She's black and queer. And I asked her, when you're the only person like you in the room, what can I do to not just be cool, but let you know that I want to matter i want to make this yeah. better for you so i'm asking these questions to understand and also help my daughter and so like, thank you for yeah asking. no i i love that question because i think there was an immense amount of frustration on my part with that feeling of being overlooked you know and i think probably we all go through that at some time in our career like that's something we'll have to reckon with that it just wasn't the the time or the place or the reason, but it was really hard not to go down that enraged feminist path <laughs> of being like, 
they're not promoting any women, you know? And really it's like, you know, if you looked at the numbers on the paper, it's probably fine. But just, you know, it was my perception at that point too, that it was, you know, just, it was, it was definitely a tough time. Well, the social thing takes me back to uh, being kind of a awkward teenager. And if you see people going to lunch or you see them going to top golf or golf or yeah. whatever it is and then it's three o'clock on a thursday and you're the only one still at your desk mm-hmm. and then you hear about it the next day yeah i don't care who you are that still hurts yeah you've been excluded and even if it's completely unintentional you just didn't fit in somehow that's right yeah and there's i mean that goes back to like the human I just think like there's the fundamental parts of being human and belonging is that's the, that's one that everybody's behavior to some degree boils down to them wanting to belong and them wanting to feel love. Yeah. I think it comes down to love and belonging. Subtitle for your book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny because a lot of what I've read recently is more in the tech space. And um, one of my favorite authors, his name is Jeff Booth, and he wrote this really great book called The Price of Tomorrow. It's kind of more economy based, but technology. Okay. And he talks about that, that, you know, everything comes down to people wanting to belong or feel love. And I think he's very enlightened. It's a great book. Totally off the topic of what we're talking about. But oh, no, not at all. Amazing. Yeah. And that's an economics book. And he's talking yeah, about so he talks about Yeah. So he talks about oh. technology as a deflationary. Um, so before we even started recording, we were talking a little bit about, like, I feel like we're in this shift. So there's the old way, like the analog way of doing things. And then there's now we have digital everything you know I work with a technology that automates accounting functions it's in the cloud everybody's moving toward cloud I even think the remote way we work even from the last year of having COVID is a major shift forward into this new age like we don't have to be in the office and we have proven that for the last year and a half with the right tools in place, you know? And so his book talks about like the deflationary nature of technology and how we are moving toward, if we let it happen, a life of letting automated cars take us everywhere. Like everything we know it is shifting and technology is happening at such an exponential rate. And I don't even think people can comprehend how fast it's coming and how different it's going to be even in 10 years. But his book is, it's marvelous. I'll that, check it out. Yeah. I would highly recommend it. And then your other article that I really wanted to talk about too. And again, I'll post links to this. The title is connections, courage, and change management. And first I wanted you to like define or take me through something that was, where you were courageous at the end of it. 
Mm. And I don't know, it, this comes from Band of Brothers and HBO, and there's a line in there that stuck with me. And my dad may have told me this. It's like, courage is you're still scared, but you do it anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you. So I had breast cancer in 2016. So the first year I became a leader, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and went through like three years of just all kinds of medical surgery. I think I had 11 surgeries by the end of it. So I have to say like that was the singular moment in my life when I was like, I have to make some big decisions about the direction I want to take and how I'm going to choose to deal with this. And nobody can do it for me. I can't ask a single person what they think because it doesn't matter. Was that a scary thought to be so isolated? It kind of was, but it was also like I just had to come to terms with it. Like nobody can do this for me. I just have to. It's just something that I'm going to have to work with. And it was just, it was actually very, I think, empowering in the end because it was, I never, this is going to sound crazy, but I just knew I wasn't going to die from it. I found it early. I wanted all the data to make the decision. So I felt like I dealt with it in a very, like, logical way, not out of fear. Like, I didn't make any, that was my one thing, no decisions out of fear. And... So in the end, it felt, I think it was maybe part of like, maybe one of the best moments in my life because I can actually think back on it. And it's, there aren't very many defining moments where, or I guess if you're doing your work, nobody can ever make decisions. Like I think as people, we lo- we reach out and we're like, what do you think? What should I do? How should I, what do you, you know, how do I do this? And I just learned in that moment, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And so it didn't feel isolating. It actually felt much more like, okay, the answer is within me. Like I just, I just need to head into it. Was that the first time you realized how powerful you actually are? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think coming out at the end of it, was and I worked the whole time like I still like I got tons of time off from work while I was going so I was a brand new leader just gotten hired to do the job got that diagnosis and then just I mean I cannot even express enough gratitude for the company that I worked at and just their supportiveness like I didn't even have to think about work like I was there when I was there. And then when I was in treatment, I was in treatment and everybody was covering for me. So so that aspect of it, I just think back on and I'm like, gosh, I could just wish everybody going through something like that had that kind of a support system. And I just never worried about my job, which I can't even imagine if somebody was worried about losing their job or didn't have health care. That just was not my situation. Um, I just went off on that little tangent and I didn't even, I don't remember your question. <laughs> First, I, I just want to say thank you for opening up about that. I oh, no yeah. Idea. Yeah, nobody does. courageous. Um, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very open <clears throat> about it. I feel like it's um, more and more young women are, I was 39 when I was diagnosed, so 
quite felt really young at that time. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of the, it was a, it's a definitely a turning point in my life and for the better, you know, I think everything that came after that, I was just so much more like solid in myself. And I think what I was saying at the very beginning of that, I never thought I was going to die. I never was like, I mean, you grapple with your death. You're like, God, this could be bad. Like, what if I've got two kids? I've got, you know, they were little at the time, you know, and I think I was like, then you go through the stage of like, okay, if I have to have chemo and I lose all my hair, like, how's that going to go? And every one of those questions or those, that level of fear, I would just watch myself move through it to an acceptance state. And it was like, I'm going to be okay. And there was just such like solid understanding that I was going to be okay that I really just, yeah, I just moved through it the best that I could. And, you know, I don't remember it. It wasn't a horrible time of life. I mean, it was, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but, you know, I, there's so many good things that I had and I had lots of help and support. So that decision process you went through of facing those fears, I first heard about it um, in Ryan Holiday and Stoicism, things like that. Mm-hmm. Was that a natural skill to fit? Because that's the exercise is that like, okay, you get fired or you get breast cancer. He goes, you take it to the most extreme worst thing you can imagine and back up from there and just sort of not deconstruct it. Yeah. But, and I'll do that. Like, okay, lost my job. Okay. So I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose this. And so you, instead of just you start naming the demons and it mm-hmm. helps, I think, the brain process that. Yeah. Where did that come from? For Honestly, you? I don't know. I think that's funny because I, I never thought about it like that as a skill. But I think it was just, again, like it started with that idea that there's nobody that can get me out of this. Nothing can get me out of this. So how do you like work the problem? And I think it just sort of naturally came to me to think about, you know, if that, then that, and I'll be okay, you know? But I think like anybody that's faced that their own mortality in like a really real way, because again, like out of one side of my mouth, I'm like, I I never thought I was actually going to die. I really didn't. But I also was like, God, this is going to be brutal. You know, like this is going to be a couple years of just, you know, this could be the hardest thing I ever do. And you do kind of go, and I, you know, maybe it is, maybe it is going to be over sooner than you think. And I think once you just reckon with that, then you're like, and I'm still here right now in this body, you know, making this decision, drinking this water or whatever. And I just, you know, would come back to present moment. And I think it really deepened my my own spirituality. Like I'm very much, I have a very um, regular spiritual practice. I do a lot of yoga. It's really more like prayer. It's not even, I don't even, I wouldn't call it yoga because I think a lot of people in the United States do yoga for like fitness, but mine is much more prayerful. And I think all of that came out of that experience and just that solidity of, moving through that process in the way that I did 
I wouldn't give it back for anything. Like I would not change anything about that whole experience because of what it delivered on the other side for me. Was that your first uh, personal or intimate brush with mortality in any capacity? Yeah, I mean, I well, I did have one rafting trip where I flipped the boat in a big, <laughs> in a big wave train. And I came up and I hit my head on the bottom of the boat, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm gonna die!" But I was like a flash, right? Like mm-hmm. I remember that, like my, I had a two year old at the time, and like his face flashed, and then I went back under the water and I popped up, and it was fine. But this was a much more like, you know, like you find out if anybody has had a cancer diagnosis, they you know this, you find out, and then you wait a week. And you find out what, you know, you go see a doctor and then you wait two more weeks and they, you know, it's like this very slow, it feels like slow motion right. unfolding of that waiting. And then, and then I had, you know, I, I, I opted for a double mastectomy. And so that happened a month after my diagnosis. And then I waited another two weeks to get the diagnosis back on how like how aggressive the cancer was. So it was like an eight week time period of just making a decision, coming to terms with it. And I would feel like so satisfied for a few seconds about having made the decision. And it was like, okay, I have direction. And then you just wait again, because you just didn't fully know the scope of what you were dealing with for like two months. And then it, you know, then once you know, you were like, yeah, yeah, it was, I've never been in a position like that of how, you know, is it going to be like kind of bad or is it going to be really hard? Because I, you know, you think about chemo and being so sick and so I didn't have to do chemo. Thank God. Well, I mean, I'm on, I'm on a, they give you a chemo pill for like the next five years I have it, but that's, it's not like intravenous, like the, Mm you know, what you envision when somebody's has cancer. I had a <clears throat> turning point, not as drastic as yours, but it was during my divorce and it was when uh, my ex, so I give a lot of credit for it because um, if she had just left, then I wouldn't have discovered ADD. I wouldn't have discovered all these things. And yeah. so to her credit, while we were working on the marriage and I went from, I don't know if you knew this about me. Like I was a perfect asshole. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so for the first couple months, like it was all her fault. Right. It was like, you got to fix this. And my life started transforming when I focused on myself. But when we had sort of reached this, um, we were just stopped. And I remember that, okay, it's time to grow up and she's going to be gone. There's not going to be anybody to help me. And I landed where you landed. It took me a little while to just embrace that I could really do this. Yeah. And even at, I don't know how old I was, 32, something like that, that that's when I started growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we're lucky when we get given the opportunity to have that moment where you are like this is all me and I think people like spend their entire life running from moments like that you know there's people that you know want to avoid that kind of hardship at all costs and again I think even to take it back to the leadership thing it's like 
this is where I've learned. And I think I learned from an early age, just from being in sports that were tough. It's like you head into it. You don't run from it, you know? And something I want to thank you for, apart from the time, is that you've reminded me that I used to have on my monitor, and I'm going to go put it on there tonight for tomorrow, is that are you doing what you're afraid of? Oh, yeah. And so oh. I'd forgotten that that had fallen off or I changed monitors or something. And, and you saying that about going into it, that not seeing that reminder, I think, has affected my mindset a little bit. So thank you for yeah. reminding me about that. In fact, um, in Brene <clears throat> Brown's book, she talks about, I think it's a quote from Joseph Campbell, and it's, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. That's where the good stuff is. <laughs> it's all Casa that, Bonita. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that might not have the treasure that you seek. <laughs> I heard the guys from South Park were trying, the creators of South Park were trying to buy Casa Bonita. How I was cool like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's would be perfect. But I was yeah. uh, listening to Ramit Sethi on Tim Ferriss's podcast, and uh, you know, enough said about me listening to that. But he's talking about a rich life mm-hmm. in in the terms of monetary security mm-hmm. and rather than like looking at something on a spreadsheet what would be a rich life and he gave examples of a woman that wanted to go to whole foods and not look at the price tags yeah or one guy didn't want to ever pack a suitcase he wanted to ship stuff hmm. so like a hundred bucks yeah but for these guys <laughs> the fact that they wanted to buy a cost of <laughs> totally and that's a rich life. That, that is, is what rich money life. can do for you, oh, right? Yeah. Um, and I lost my mom to, to, to go back to the cancer diagnosis mm-hmm. and maybe another uh, defining moment in my life when I was 20. And, oh, wow, that's young. Yeah, yeah, tough. And again, being young and being a like an entitled jerk when I was younger, I thought, I get a free pass from here on out because I went through this. Uh-huh. Yes. And I was, you know, 10, 12 years later, was surprised by more challenges. But to your point about the, the darkness and the cave, it's going to be visited upon you whether you want it or not. Yeah. And I'm not saying you go seek out those things, but the more I challenge myself to go test myself, it gives me, it could be the illusion of control. Mm-hmm. But even that's helpful. Like, none of this is just happening to me. Like, I'm trying to do something about it. Right. Yes. Yeah, none of this is happening to us. It's either the result of a past choice is what we're living now. And so, therefore, it's like you've got to be really clear about the choices that you're making right now. Because that's what, that's our future, you know. The thoughts that we have now are our reality later whether we know it or not i'm going to issue a challenge to you because i this is an amazing book this is an amazing (laughs) concept and just your personality and your character and this i hope i do my part for you with this yeah but this is definitely i don't want to call it a brand because that cheapens it Mm -hmm. but 
your story needs to be bigger. Yeah. And so if I can help, I would love to. Because yeah, this could I, be a book, this could be videos, but this is just your your mindset is it's inspiring me again to go back to things I know yeah. that I should be doing. So thank you for that. But oh. that can help so many other people. I think there is some change in my life that's coming where I have this real desire to support people. And I think it's um, it's really about supporting people in their own belief system, you know? And it's like, what do you really believe you can do or you're capable of? And it's not about being an inspirational speaker or anything, but I'm definitely interested in that. And I think, yeah, it's funny because it's like my story is my story. And in fact, you know, I don't even think about having cancer anymore, but it is you know, when I hear myself say the way that I got through it, it's like, yeah, that was probably pretty unique. <laughs> you know? But I think it's what needs to, what people need to hear. Yeah, and I was sure. talking about this last week. I went to see Tony Robbins before this was back when the McNichols Arena. Here in oh, Denver. I remember. I was here. <laughs> yeah. And I remember that for a day and a half, I was like a Labrador. I was excited about everything. And yeah. I didn't know why. And because I didn't change my habits and I didn't change my philosophy and my behaviors, nothing changed. Mm -hmm. And this is just my opinion, but a lot of the stuff out there is just, okay, yeah. let's really enjoy this. Yeah. Like, no, like you, like you did. Went to the dark cave. Yeah. And I'm going to face it and I'm going to work backwards. And it's not a pill and it's not a shake weight it's like you eat less you exercise it's going to be boring it's going to suck right and i think anybody that's selling anything that is not talking about i think the mundane about this is doing people a disservice agreed yeah and i even think it's funny because like my ability so when i wrote that leadership piece um i had somebody comment to me they were like I think they texted me and they were like, wow, I just, I can't believe you went there. And so we talked a little bit about the vulnerability. And I remember I was so nervous when I wrote that piece to publish it. Like it was like the next thing. I think I was seeking that after, you know, like I'm with you. I'm, if it's not, if I'm not like, if it's not hard or if I'm not scared, I'm not, probably doing enough or doing the right things in the moment you know like I always want to be pushing myself to find that next level of growth which I know exists in putting yourself out there and you know I think it's I'm very I've always told people about having cancer I just never felt like there was any I wasn't like there's no shame in it you know there was no didn't feel like, I'm not super private like that, but I think um, the whole evolution of, of my, where I am from there to now is, that's probably like one of the single most important lessons that I learned from it was push into it. And then it's inspired me to keep looking in life for that next thing, you know, like I would never hesitate to go for the promotion or 
even doing this podcast, I remember being like, do I have enough to talk about? Or am I interesting enough? You know, like, but it's like the minute I knew that there was resistance, I was like, go Mm. head that way, you know? Well, it's been an hour 15. I think you've had a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, we did it. Again, I'm not an expert at this, but I saw that the the courage to state that you have fears in a professional capacity yeah. was bold and so legitimate. And a lot of it, LinkedIn turned into like professional Facebook years ago. Right. And there's a lot of stuff of just... It's vanilla. Yeah. But the fact that you even admitted that you can or will be or have been afraid. Yeah. Is it was one of the boldest things that I'd seen. And so that's why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. And maybe that's why I was so nervous when I originally wrote it. Because I was like, am I sharing too much? Or will I be like if an employer reads it, what will they think? You know, and then I again, it's that there's the resistance go that way and I just did it and then it was like it felt so good I mean there's always reward in that you know for sure well I'm glad you read it because this was fun (laughs) (laughs) it was a great job thank you yeah Um, I'll uh, I'll post links to your LinkedIn profile so people can connect and uh, like I said there there is something substantial here well I'd we love should to be a part yeah of me too I, I think you're right and I I think I'm yeah I've been thinking about it and it's like how do you start something like that or you think about writing a book and you're like oh my god how would that even happen but yeah I think you're right there is something there well thank you for uh, motivating me and inspiring ah, me thank and, you yeah so Jessica Ray this has been great thank you so much let's do it again soon okay Episodes of this podcast are produced and written by me, Matt Sodnikar. The intro was engineered by good friend Cole Weinman. And our original score theme song, Retro Funk, was composed by previous guest and good friend Randy Wiafe. I also have two requests. If you like this show, please share it with a friend who you think might like it. And also take the time to show them how to listen to a podcast, either on Apple transistor or spotify and i know you know somebody out there that would make a fantastic guest and if you do please shoot me an email to podcast at thewarmfront.com thanks for listening